This is Cantus Firmus, Kingdom Theology for Christians Without a Country. Greetings, this is Cantus Firmus. I'm Cody Cook. My guest is Brian Kaplan, professor of economics at George Mason University and a New York Times bestselling author of books that challenge conventional wisdom on topics like immigration, education, government regulation, they all have the Asian thing at the end, and feminism. Uh, to those topics, we'll turn to momentarily. Uh, Brian, thank you so much for being here. How are you doing today? I'm doing fantastic, Cody. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm excited to be speaking, awesome. with, speaking with you. I love, love your, your books and I've been, been a fan for a while. Glad to hear it. So um, maybe to start with, I mentioned you're, you're an economist, and uh, your view is maybe not the the it's your sort of sort of how do I want to say this kind of political economic viewpoint is maybe not the most uh, common one in, in that field. Uh, you would describe yourself as an anarcho capitalist, is that correct? Uh, sure, that's not the first thing that I say, but oh. I'll take it. <laughs> what, what what's the first thing you'd say? Hmm. I mean, I'd probably start with libertarian rather than okay. anarcho capitalist, just not to narrow things down too much. And then in terms of my primary identity, I would say I mostly think of myself as a public intellectual yeah, as well as researcher. Gotcha. Okay. Well, so I'm interested in the the anarchist thing just because it's something that I've covered a little bit. And Mm -hmm. um, one topic that comes up a lot is the sort of conjunction of anarcho and capitalist together, which traditional anarchists tended to be what you might call anarcho-communists. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but really, you know, an anarchist is someone who doesn't believe in the state's authority to initiate force, but does believe in free markets. Um, and so, you know, uh, I guess what I would say is, you know, a lot of these sort of more progressive looking anarchists, uh, would say, well, you're not a real anarchist. And I guess my question is, why are they wrong? I mean, of course, I'll just say I'm not the language police. So if you're just going <laughs> to say that it doesn't count, then I'm not that inclined to argue. Gotcha. And I would say, look, we've got the standard Weberian definition of government as an organization that holds a monopoly over the use of force over geographical area. So I'd say any view that says you shouldn't have that would count as an anarchist view and that it's dogmatic and sectarian just to say, no, it's only my particular version that counts. I mean, if anything, I would say, look, the shoe actually is on the other foot, not because all anarcho-communists actually secretly believe in government, but they just don't have any viable alternative to government. So really what they've done in practice when they've managed to get control of an area, mostly anarcho-syndicalists in the Spanish Revolution, is they just have government and then they call it not government. Yeah. Yeah, well, in particular, what's kind of, what's kind of interesting to me is that it seems to me that ANCAPs, anarcho-capitalists, are the, are the folks who are maybe being more consistent because to, to be a consistent, to be an anarcho-communist, you have to be able to say, well, we're going to limit free enterprise and free exchange of goods and voluntary interactions. I mean, I think they're more likely just to go and deny that people would want to do this, to say it's only a particular society that shaped you to be this way. And actually, once we had a good, a well-functioning system, people would be really different. Sure. So that is a logically possible position. It's, I would say, totally made up and unrealistic. I mean, what's very striking, actually, is when you look at alleged historic cases of, in particular, anarcho-syndicalism. It's not just they retained some vestigial government to do something or other, but rather that they actually had some of the most impressive, some of the most oppressive, not impressive, but oppressive governments known to man. I have an old paper called The Anarcho-Status of Spain, Mm -hmm. where essentially they set up Stalinist slave labor camps in the countryside Mm -hmm. of Catalonia, and then 
with gun set and there's no government here right it's like give me a break <laughs> well, the, 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 the idea that maybe once we get rid of the brainwashing, we wouldn't want free markets anymore mm-hmm. uh, makes you think of something we'll probably get to later, which is uh, this idea, um, you know, that you sort of find in feminism that the reason that women uh, in America are interested in what they're interested in and behave the way they do is because of brainwashing and not necessarily. Uh, so, and then, of course, when you take go, go move out of this context, move into a context where there's uh, even more political and economic freedom for women, they, they tend to. Uh, become more stereotypical in that sense and men as well. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, so I think there's, there's something to that. Sure. Yeah. I mean, so like a lot of it is the strange idea that some views that appeal to a very tiny cult of people are what everybody really wants. And the <laughs> ideas that almost everyone around the world has had for thousands of years are brainwashing. Yes. Uh, it's, yeah. It's probably the other way around. Yeah. Fair enough. Well, let, let's maybe kind of focus in a little bit, because I think I mean, we may end on feminism um, because it's uh, in one sense, I feel like maybe it's I don't want to say it's your most controversial view that we're going to talk about. I, I maybe it's, not. <laughs> <laughs> but, but maybe, uh, maybe it's it could be the most offensive to folks on the left. Uh, I don't know. Maybe your views in education would be more offensive. Yeah. Um, but maybe we'll start with your views on immigration, which mm-hmm. I think are um, put you sort of out of the left and right frame in general, but also maybe is more opposed to the kind of right wing view of, of uh, you know, nativism or whatever. So you wrote this book, uh, Open Borders, which is, uh, I think I was familiar with you before then would, would see clips and, and hear, hear, hear your reference and stuff. I think that was the first book that I read from you. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really a fantastic book. And one of the things I love about it, oh, I should have brought it out. I thought I had it with me, um, is it's a, um, it's actually a graphic novel. <laughs> And so, um, Zach Wienersmith, I believe, is the uh, the uh, illustrator on it, who's I known for Zach Wienersmith. Sure. Yeah. So, um, maybe just really quickly, what, what made you go with that route as opposed to uh, something that was just super um, uh, kind of laying it out and with just text? Here's the main problem that you have as a researcher. You know, there's all this fantastic research, often establishing in a very solid way, controversial, surprising, novel claims but it's so boring that hardly anyone would ever read it. One thing I sit around trying to do is how can I take the research that really matters and get people to pay attention to it? This was an experiment along those lines. What if I were to go and put it into a nonfiction graphic novel? I had read some other ones that I thought were excellent, in particular the cartoon history of the universe. So I saw that it could work if with for some things. And then my was the question I had for myself was, can I do this? Just because you're a fan doesn't mean that you can do it. Mm. So I did go and make storyboards, and then I did get one of the world's greatest cartoon artists, uh, Zach Wienersmith, a Saturday morning breakfast cereal. Um, in terms of the other things I was hoping to do, I noticed that one thing that you can do with this graphic novel format is by combining words and pictures, the old adage, a picture is worth a thousand words, mm. you can convey a lot more information in a much shorter amount of time. Furthermore, by making it more fun, you can get people to give you more of their time. So you are basically multiplying two things. One is the amount of learning per minute times the number of minutes that you get. Seems like I was able to get just a lot more out of people and change a lot more minds using this format than I was with other projects that I've done. My other other books, let's see, I've won popular science book, two university press books. They've done well, but I think that in terms of sheer power persuasion, this graphic novel is the best that I've ever done. Yeah, it's it's, it's an excellent book. I've recommended it to a lot of people. 
So um, maybe focusing on the arguments a little bit, I mean, the book is called Open Borders and you're making an argument for open borders. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, what would you say to those who argue that we're just going to be opening the doors to terrorists and freeloaders if we uh, open our borders? <laughs> yes. I mean, you might say that's a caricature, but that's pretty much what my dad will tell you. <laughs> right. I mean, the, so there's these specific complaints. Sorry. Right? So you're just opening your doors to terrorists. This is where I'll say like terrorism is incredibly rare. The overwhelming, overwhelming majority of immigrants are not terrorists. So to go and act like this is the normal state of affairs or even something that is worthy of more than a very small amount of tension is just wrong. The idea that they're freeloaders, this is one where, uh, first of all, you can just take a look and see that in the United States, immigrants are generally going to have higher labor force participation rates than natives do. But uh, even in countries where they don't, you still have at least reasonably high levels of labor force participation. Whether or not they're going to freeload depends heavily upon whether the law allows them. So yeah, in Sweden, you can go there and you can get on welfare and never get off. Right? You can either say, ah, well, this shows that immigration is a stupid idea, or you can say, mm-hmm. no, it shows that letting people receive free money for their entire lives is a stupid idea. Maybe you should change that instead yeah. of using this as a lame excuse for denying people the right to move and get a job. Or at minimum, you could say there's going to be different standards for migrants versus natives for their access to the welfare state. This is what all common sense would tell you to do. This is what all high immigration countries actually do. So the Gulf monarchies have the most immigration in the world. This does not mean that they just go and share their oil money with anybody who shows up. Rather, citizens get the oil money and native, or rather immigrants go and do a pile of work. Yeah. So it, it maybe uh, I kind of want to start by clearing some of the cobwebs, some of the arguments that you hear from folks, but maybe it'd actually be better to uh, spend a little time just make, hearing kind of your positive case. Mm-hmm. What are the benefits for open borders? It seems like you've kind of yes. discussed one of them, which is the, this economic um, uh, incentive, right. benefits that, that it brings. Yeah, I mean, one of the main problems when talking about immigration is people say, well, there's a few arguments for, a few arguments against, who's to say? Mm-hmm. What I do in this book is say, look, there's one argument that is so big that even if all the other complaints were true, we should still totally do it. Namely, what does immigration do? It takes labor from countries where people's productivity is low and moves it to where country, or moves it to countries where the productivity is high, which enriches humanity and by an enormous amount. Standard estimate is something like doubling the production of humanity if you could just let anyone take a job anywhere. Why? Well, again, you're multiplying two big things. First of all, the gain in productivity per worker. We know if you go and take someone from Haiti or Nigeria, moved in the United States, their productivity multiplies by about a factor of 15. All right. So Mm -hmm. if you're making $2,000 a year in Haiti or Nigeria, you're making $32,000 a year in the United States. It's a $30,000 gain for humanity. It's not like Haiti and Nigeria lose what the U.S. gains. Rather, they they lose a little bit from a person leaving. We gain an enormous amount because their labor is so much more productive. So we take that large gain per person and multiply it by plausible estimates of how many would come, which are in the billions over the medium run, you get a large thing times a large thing, and you get a huge thing. And that's where these numbers of doubling the total production of humanity via open borders come from. We're talking about tens of trillions of extra dollars worth of production per year. Once you understand that, then everything else becomes a rounding error by comparison, really. All the other complaints that people have I have to go and press one for English on the ATM machine. Yeah, well, that's not worth trillions of dollars. That's not worth billions. It's not worth millions. It is a very tiny cost, which if you would put a number on it and multiply it by the number of people affected, you could see that it was just a rounding error. 
the way that I often like to put it is this, one trillion minus one billion approximately equals a trillion. <laughs> so that's the main thing in my mind. I also do start with the moral argument of telling someone that if they're just because they're born in Haiti, they have to stay there for their entire life. Seems yeah. like an awful thing to do to another human being. If someone did that to you, would that be okay? You probably would not think so. And then the question is, is this the kind of thing where it seems awful, but it actually makes sense when you really look deeper? Or is it the kind of thing that seems awful because it really is awful? I say, yes, it really is an awful thing to do to another human being. Yeah. If it was a matter of, if you leave Haiti, you'll spread a plague that will destroy the world. All right, fine. That's a, that's a good reason. That's something that you could even imagine going and telling the person saying, look, I understand that it's terrible for you to be in here in Haiti, but you will kill millions of people if you leave. No, sorry. I'm really, it's really sad that it has to be this way. It's tragic, but there's no other alternative. That is not the way actual immigration works. What immigrants do is there's a large, there's large gains. Of course, there's always some drawbacks. There's drawbacks from every kind of progress, every kind of change in society. You can always point to downsides. The reasonable thing is to look at the net and the net for immigration is not just positive. It is enormously astronomically positive. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the, the, speaking of the, the person from Haiti who's told they can't leave, I mean, it feels very totalitarian to, to, oh, yeah. to make that kind yeah. of argument. And in right. fact, you, you know, know, I've got some thought experiments where I say, look, suppose that everything that happened to East Germans happened, except it was every other country said you can't leave rather than the government of your mm. own country saying you can't leave. So you can't come versus you can't leave. What difference would it really make? Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, some people say that a country restricting immigration is the same as a person deciding mm -hmm. who can and can't enter their home. Mm -hmm. so, so what I mean, my question about that is, um, why are those people so stupid and how are they any different from communists? Well, I don't think they're stupid. No, no, I'm, I'm just yes, kidding. Yes. But <laughs> wrong. I mean, yeah. like, one of the greatest errors in the world of ideas is accusing your opponents of being stupid. Normally, yes. the foremost advocate of any view is very intelligent. Correct. Yeah. I, well, like I will accuse them of lacking perspective or common sense or being conformist, <laughs> but that does not mean I'm going to call them stupid. I think that's yeah. actually very rare. You know, Paul Krugman is a brilliant guy, genius level IQ. He's wrong about a lot of things, but there's no need to make false accusations against his intellect, which is tremendous. Sure. Well, um, and, and, and yeah. maybe that was kind of a yeah. tongue in cheek. Yeah, thing. Yeah. But, but, yeah, but anyway, yeah. in terms of where they go wrong, well, this is a case where a reductio ad absurdum is appropriate. You are allowed to say that you can't that you can't open up a church in my in my house. I go that is I'm allowed to say you can't open up a church in my house, right? Fine. All right. That therefore it's okay for a country to say you can't open up a church in the country, mm -hmm. right? It is fine for me to say you can't move in, you can't have a baby under my roof. Therefore, it's fine for government to say you can't have a baby without government permission. Yeah. It's fine for me to say you can't open up a store on my property. Therefore, it's fine for government to say you can't open up a store in the country. What is the common thread here? The common thread is that private property means the right to do what you want, even when the government doesn't agree. If you think the government is the rightful owner of your entire country, then yeah, you are a totalitarian socialist. You are not someone who believes in human freedom or private property, right? Really pretty obviously, like if you actually believe that governments have the right to decide what happens within their borders, then there is really nothing that you should object to that governments of the most totalitarian description do. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting, too, because it is primarily conservatives who are mm -hmm. making this kind of argument, but it is, it is largely a, sort of a socialist totalitarian argument. 
Yeah. Um, which like, and it's also our country. Our country decides what happens in our country. Yeah. You know, like that justifies Saudi Arabia. Sure. You know, like, like you can't open up a non-Muslim church in our country. No, because it's our country. We decide what happens here. Like the whole idea of private property is no, it's not a we, it's a bunch of different eyes. It's not one collective decision for a nation. It's millions of decisions for individual property owners. What is immigrant, what is open borders amount to? It means that the person that decides whether an immigrant is on a piece of property is the business owner, the merchant, the landowner. And of course, as we know, plenty of these people are more than happy to go and hire immigrants, rent immigrants, have immigrant customers. Of course yeah. they are. Why wouldn't they be? Absolutely. Well, and, and it's, I mean, essentially the argument is, is, is what you might call like a legalistic argument, mm-hmm. which, it, which it kind of brings me to this other point. You'll hear oftentimes people say, well, I'm in favor of legal immigration. Mm-hmm. Legal immigration is good. It's illegal immigration mm-hmm. that's bad. And the implication is that anything illegal is bad. Anything mm-hmm. legal is good. And so, I mean, wouldn't uh, your proposal to make all immigration legal just make it good by definition? <laughs> uh, you would think. I have convinced exactly zero people with this argument because people who say they oppose illegal immigration want to keep most of the illegal immigration illegal. It's not really just a complaint about legality. It's a complaint about we have these great laws that are keeping out immigrants Mm. that are not good to have in our country. And then illegal immigrants are preventing our wonderful laws from working in which usually amounts to especially low skilled immigrants are bad. And I said, look, low skilled immigrants are great. We need low-skilled workers. They perform, they provide very useful skills. So why is it that we would not want to have them here? Again, like a farmer is a low-skilled worker. Why don't we want more farmers? What's wrong with farming? Yeah. Well, so that's that, that's one sacred cow, and I, and I hope people will check out your your book because it is it is a fantastic book, and we only kind of just scratch the surface of it. Yeah. I mean, admittedly, it's another- the best I've ever done. <laughs> it's pretty great. Well, one, this other one is also one of my favorites, which is uh, the book you wrote, The Case Against Education. And uh, there you debunk the idea that we go through grade school, middle school, high school, college, because we need to learn things that are essential for life in our world or for the occupation that we mm-hmm. aspire to. So that's the presumption we have. We need this education because mm-hmm. it prepares us for something uh, specific. Why is that presumption false? It's not totally false. It's just greatly overblown. Say, look, there's two reasons why education might pay off in the labor market, most notably. One is that it teaches you valuable job skills. The other one is that it gives you a stamp on your forehead, grade A worker, which then opens doors for you, which allows you to get the life you want. Uh, The slogan that I use is we usually do think about education as job training, whereas it's really much more of a passport to the real training that happens on the job. This is what, you know, so how, why is it that we should believe me rather than most of the people work in this area? You know, I would just start by saying, let's take a look at what people actually study in school. How much of it would ever plausibly be used on any job? You take years of history classes. Other than being a history teacher, when would you ever use that in real life? You do poetry. Other than being a poetry teacher, when would you ever use that in real life? And so on down the list. Some stuff, of course, you do use. Literacy, numeracy. This is actually valuable on the job, but most of what you spend time learning in school is not going to be valuable in any plausible occupation. And yet, and yet we've also got very strong evidence that these credentials pay. So then you have to ask yourself, why would employers pay people extra for credentials when they don't actually want you to know the skills you've learned in school? And this is where this, the obvious story is. It's a way to separate yourself from the pack. It's a way of showing that you are a worthwhile trainable employee. 
when an employer has hundreds of applications, they're looking for reasons to say no, not just to hiring. They're looking for reasons to say no, even to interviewing. They need to thin the herd. They can't interview 300 people, much less give 300 people a trial period. So that is the main thing that people use, ed use education for is for this certification feature. The key thing to understand about it is from the point of view of an individual, it doesn't really matter why your education pays. You just need to know that it works. <laughs> but from the point of view of education policy, it matters tremendously. If the reason why education pays is that you learn useful skills, then when taxpayers subsidize it, they are at least increasing the scale of the workforce, which then will increase the prosperity of society. On the other hand, insofar as education is credentialing and certifying and stamping, then if you subsidize it, what you do is you get more stamps on people's foreheads. At this point, employers will just raise the bar and say, you now need more stamps to be worthy to not have your application be thrown in the garbage. Mm. This is something we've seen very clearly since World War II. We've had probably about three years worth of credential inflation. Since we're in a period of high inflation, we all know what inflation's like, and you all understand that if the government just printed a million bucks and gave it to every single person, it would not enrich the country. It would just cause hyperinflation. Similarly, if everybody gets fancy degrees, this does not mean everybody gets to have a good job. It means that you need a college degree in janitor, janitorial science to become a janitor. Hmm. Which, which, which suggests that employers aren't necessarily looking for college degrees to, to, because they think it means you know something. Mm -hmm. But it's like you said, it's a way of sort of saying this person has jumped through the hoops and is a reliable yeah. person. Yeah, so like I say basically doing well in school, it shows a package of three things. It shows you're smart. That's one. Shows you're hardworking because you could be smart and if you're lazy enough, you'll still fail out of school. And finally, there's conformity, which I think is the third item that you really have to appreciate on a deep level to understand why the system is as rigid and long lasting as it has been. I know people who are smart and hardworking, but they are failures in school because they just will not submit to authority. They will not play nice with others. They will not go ba-ba with the other sheep. And so on the one hand, I really like these people. They're fun people. They're creative. On the other hand, I don't want to employ them because there is no I in team. You can't have people who are totally defiant working productively in a job. It just doesn't work. Yeah. One, of the, the, one of the main things school does is it sifts people out and says, if you won't go and do a bunch of stupid, pointless things just because you're told to do so, we will crush your dreams, <laughs> which is sad. But at the same time, it, it does explain the durability of the system. Like, why don't we just come up with a totally different way of certifying people instead of this crummy one that we've got? Here's the thing. If you show up at a job interview and say, look, I don't have any normal credentials, but I've done something really weird that shows how smart and hardworking I am. It's like, I've written a thousand new episodes of Star Trek. All right. On the one end, are you seem pretty smart? On the other, furthermore, you seem hardworking. It's a thousand episodes of Star Trek. That's where you put a lot of effort in. You got follow through, kid. But on the other hand, it's like, I don't think I want to hire a person who refuses to do any normal school, but sits around <laughs> writing new Star Trek episodes. Yeah. That just seems like an odd kind of person who's going to be hard to slot into a team. Yeah. There is an old picture, an old painting. Of, I think it's the University of Paris around 1200. And it's a class painting of a classroom. The classroom barely looks any different from a classroom today, other than the fact that they're writing in wax instead of on paper. But otherwise, it's the sage on the stage, a bunch of people taking notes. How is a system this dysfunctional lasted for hundreds of years? And my answer is because it's really hard to come up with a new creative revolutionary signal of conformity. Hmm. The very people that want to try that new revolutionary signal of conformity 
when they do so, they show that they are non-conformists. We've yeah. got what I call locked-in syndrome for the status quo, so it's yeah. a problem. It almost says more to stick with the bad system. Uh, <laughs> right. Well, or my big proposal is how about we take away the trillion dollars of subsidies in favor of the status quo and see how long it lasts and how much it shrinks. There's a lot of evidence that it is not impervious to incentives. The money does matter a whole lot, yeah. and it would shrink enormously, allowing yeah. people to then go and start their lives at a much younger age. So, yeah, so, so government subsidies essentially sort of create this sort of artificial mm-hmm. environment where things, people aren't actually necessarily buying something because they want it. Of course. They're buying it. Yeah. yeah but, so um, basically, look, there's a lot of people say, well, isn't it valuable to go and certify worker scale? Yes, that is valuable. But when you pour a trillion dollars on this one way of doing it, this totally prejudges the question of could there be any other possible ways of figuring out who's good at a job besides the crummy system we've got? I will just say I'm not absolutely sure that there is, but there's a trillion dollars of government money per year, roughly, that's going to status quo. Let's try it and find out. Let's see what happens if we pull that money away. I think it's overwhelmingly likely that the system will greatly shrink and become more flexible and just not take as long. So, so, so if you were appointed secretary of education and given authority to do whatever you wanted to do, or let's just say even one thing, yeah. would it just be that primarily to try yeah. to take austerity, the austerity all the way, just cut spending as much as I'm possibly allowed. Of course, the federal government doesn't even spend that much directly, but I could kill student loans. That's a federal program. If you let me do that, that would be a major program. Yeah. Kill student loans and also say you have to pay back the student loans you already paid. So two parts. <laughs> right. And actually, at this point, I would say I've got an extra argument for ending the program, which is that now we see that it's hard to actually make people pay up. They've had three years where they haven't paid a dime pretty much. Yeah. So this is a reason to say, look, anyone who said that this would, would not become a taxpayer giveaway was wrong. And so let's go and pull the plug and also say no bailouts for the past students. You agreed to it. It shouldn't be taxpayers that make up the difference. So assuming we don't just keep kind of going the way we have been going, because it seems that there are a lot of people noting that the system's unsustainable and doesn't work. Mm-hmm. And you have a lot of people asking questions and presenting different proposals. Um, it makes me wonder what, what the future of education might be. So like I went to school for theology, which which is a field that I know that you don't feel too warm and fuzzy about. But <laughs> um, but I have to admit that. So I've got like mixed feelings about a potential future where higher education. Trained to be a theologian, less, right? What's that? Trains you to be a theologian. It does. Yeah, right. And, and which, which, you know, here's the thing. Um, I value my education. I didn't get, uh, I, I only took classes when I could afford it because I knew it was not really a good financial investment. Mm-hmm. I wasn't going to be like, you know, I'm going to get all these loans then I'm going to be this rock star theologian making millions of dollars a year. Uh, very, that's very rare. Um, and, but, you know, right now, if I wanted to get a job in the field, it's very difficult, like a teaching job or something like that. And because there's so many, unless I want to go to Asia or Africa to do it. Um, and so, you know, that that's maybe evidence of, of maybe bad incentives or something for a lot of people. But, you know, but but when I think about it, you know, I think that there's value in having a sort of more academic approach, the sort of academic um, strain within within the Christian church, within Christian theology. Um, and I have mixed feelings about edu- higher education having less of a place in that um you know, in, in that structure, in that system, whatever. So like on the one hand, you know, and this, I'm just talking about theology specifically, but I'm going to, I'm going to expand it a little bit. Um, you know, college educated pa- pastors, for example, are expected to know about church history, how to interpret texts, you know, hermeneutics in a, in a proper way. Um, 
And there's other things that seem pretty important to doing theology the right way um, that people who are maybe in the pews aren't very familiar with. And so there's this kind of danger of populism taking over Christianity, which we've already seen how bad that can be. Um, so, but on the other hand, I think this old model of the expert pastor carries a lot of potential for abuse. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and not to mention that congregants rely on that person too much instead of setting things out. And so I've wondered, you know, is it possible that like future church congregations will be less likely to have a college educated pastor, but will have a larger number of congregants who have access to these like online theological resources that weren't really available before, but now they are. So what I'm wondering is, does the internet make it possible that we're going to have less of the less of less up here and more, more people on the bottom sort of rising to the middle where knowledge expands. Um, and so I'm thinking specifically about theology and Christianity and stuff like that, but I'm thinking about other fields as well. Does, does, does the internet and, and just the fact that this is so unsustainable and people don't want to pay back their loans, does that make it possible that we'll have more educated laymen and less people who specifically go to, to get you know, to school for these kinds of fields? The internet, I think, is almost certainly has greatly multiplied the share of autodidacts in the population. It's just probably multiplied it from like 0.01% to 0.1%. So it's nothing that we could actually see in the data. I don't know of mm. any sign that the population has become more knowledgeable about anything that we test. Yeah. So to say the internet did it presume, presumes that the, uh, the knowledge level has actually noticeably risen. I don't think it has. I think what's happened is there's a small share of the population that used to be very intellectually isolated and couldn't really be part of the conversations. And mm. now they can be. But there's just so few of them that they're invisible statistically. In terms of what's going to be happening to the education system, honestly, I'll say as long as the government subsidies continue, I think the system will barely change. Hmm. It's not like Napster uh, disintermediating the record companies. It's not like if all your customers go away, then you're out of money. Taxpayers have to keep paying for this stuff. Now, you might say, well, taxpayers aren't going to go and pay or vote to waste the money forever. I beg to differ. I think that we have an enormous amount of evidence the taxpayers will pay to waste the money forever. Things have to get really bad before taxpayers even start complaining a little bit. We saw this with public K-12 during COVID. During this time, schools decided they wanted to take all the taxpayer money to not do their job, to not provide daycare anymore. Most parents just accepted the situation. There was no big tax revolt, no big defund the schools initiatives. Uh, probably they did push things too far, and that's why in some red states you're getting school choice that is actually passing finally, hmm. and you know, a few other things like that. But basically, taxpayers are, are so deferential to authority that they will just keep going and funding the system at around you know, roughly the current level. You know, there's just so much respect for teachers, so little interest in like, well, why do we respect them? What actually, do that, what, like, what's the evidence they're doing a good job? What do we get for, like, how much do we have to pay for every kid? Is that a reasonable amount to pay? Mm. Is there some cheaper way of doing it? All of these questions are just rarely asked. Um, so yeah, I think the system's very stable, especially as long as the government subsidies persist. It's not like a private industry where if the customers go away and don't want the product anymore, that the product goes away. Rather, it's yeah. one where as long as government keeps funding it, it stays around indefinitely. Well, I guess I, I, I hope we, I hope it gets better than it is. <laughs> you know, um, I, I, like I'm actually somewhat optimistic, which is atypical for me, but the stuff that Corey DeAngelis and Chris Rufo have been doing in terms of pushing for privatization and vouchers, as well as just trying to depoliticize the brainwashing in schools, even marginally, 
think that's uh, I mean, I'm surprised at how, like how far they've gotten. Yeah. Well, to, 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 there's another book that you wrote that tried to shift uh, uh, courses so quickly, but uh, called The Myth of the Rational Voter. Mm-hmm. And you're sort of taking on this this idea. You know, we, we talk about how in economics, it's kind of common to talk about how people choose what they think is in their best interest, what, what the, the highest value for them is. Uh, but you argue that this this may be true in regard to economics, but it's not necessarily true with uh, in regard to how people vote. <laughs> yeah. and so why is that? Yes. I don't just say that it's not necessarily true, which is like say <laughs> it's not true. It's not true. <laughs> I mean, the best way of thinking about it is this. You're at the shopping center or you're at the store, you're filling your product with, you're, you're filling your cart with products. And what happens if you fill your cart with products that you don't want? The answer is you pay a pile of money for stuff you don't want and you're not happy. How can you solve this problem? Don't put the stuff you don't want into your cart. Put the stuff you do want into your cart and then when you pay for it, you get what you want. All right, now, imagine you're a voter and you're going and voting for a bunch of different policies. All right, well, when you check out, what do you get? You don't get what you put into your cart. You get the average of what the other voters put into their cart. And what you put in there is pretty much irrelevant. You can go and vote for all the best stuff in the world and not get it. You could vote for terrible stuff and, and get it, but it would have happened anyway. right? Imagine that you voted for Hitler in 1933. What did you get? Well, you got Hitler. But was it because you voted for Hitler? No. If you had voted against Hitler, you still would have gotten Hitler. That's the way democracy works. It's totally different from shopping. Uh, the way that I like to describe it is rather than it being like shopping, it's like there's a common pool of water that we all use for two purposes, one drinking and two garbage disposal. So everyone throws all of their filth and trash and waste into this pond. It's also the only place where we get our water. But guess what? If you don't throw your trash in, that doesn't make any noticeable difference in the quality of the water. It still tastes like poison. Okay. So you also address uh, some economic biases that are common among the public that economists are far less likely to hold to. What, what are, what are maybe just a few of those? I first started talking, I first talk about what I call anti-market bias. It's just a general tendency to have an unduly negative estimate of the social benefits of markets. Basically, it comes down to you look at markets, you see people are doing it to make money, and then you say it must be bad, all right, which is all wrong. Great line from Adam Smith. It is not from benevolence. The baker bakes his bread from his own regard to his own self-interest. Gives you an idea. Look, the fact that people in markets are trying to make money, which they are, does not mean that they're going to do a bad job. The question is, well, how do you make money? Do you make money by making customers happy? In that case, the fact that you want to make money leads you to treat customers well. On the other hand, do you make money by treating customers badly, which is logically possible? That case is different. I go over just lots of standard cases of how markets work, uh, but then I also go over some weird ones, things like, you know, should you be able to sell your kidney? Most people freak out about this. It's like, why? Well, then a poor person might sell their kidney to a sick person. And that's bad because why? Isn't it good for the poor to get richer and the sick to get better? Why of a system where you can give a kidney away for free, but you can't sell it? It's a very foolish system, which causes enormous misery among all the people that cannot get a kidney donation that just don't have friends and family that, where there is a match. Uh, another one I talk about is anti-foreign bias. This is where we're especially pessimistic about the social benefits of interacting with foreigners. Obviously, we have things like trying to keep out foreign products. 
But opposition immigration is, I think, the very best example, right? which uh, turns us around to where we started or brings us back to where we started. People look at a foreigner and they just try to come up with reasons to say no. It's like, look, he's going to come here and grow food. What's the problem? Well, then there's a list of complaints. Right? It's like, like these complaints are just so trivial compared to the obvious fact that here's a human being who provides a useful service for other people. What yeah. is so bad about that? And why would you want to go and trap labor in low productivity countries like Mexico when they could be doing the same job much more productively in the United States or another mm -hmm. richer country? There's a, I was going to say, there's a, a made me think of a, a Rowan Atkinson sketch where he's uh, playing mm -hmm. a, like a tour, um, not a tour, yeah, Tory uh, party leader. And he's talking about now on immigration. I happen to like curry, but now that we have the recipe. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <but anyway. laughs> Pretty good one. Yeah. I also talk about to make work bias, just a, a tendency to rate economic prosperity by employment rather than production. Very tempting. But of course, this, if you really took this seriously, you want to ban the tractor, right? Mechanization of agriculture reduced agricultural employment, of course. And at the time, if you had just said, well, it's not a big deal, people will find something else to do, people would have called you a dreamer. What else are people going to do? Agriculture has been 95% of all jobs for the last 10,000 years. And the answer is we can find tons of other stuff for human beings to do. It's just we don't figure it out until we actually have the spare resources to do it. Uh, right now, I'm working on another book on government policy where I say we can zoom out to a higher level abstraction and say, really, the unifying principle is this. Markets do the good stuff that sounds bad. Governments do the bad stuff that sounds good. Right? Markets do good stuff that sounds bad, like firing workers that don't do their job, like putting businesses that don't have any customers out of business like producing stuff that's embarrassing. They make things that people don't want to argue for publicly. They produce alcohol. They produce pornography. What's the argument? People like them. That's the argument. Right? They're embarrassed to admit it, but markets do it anyway because markets go and produce what people actually want, not what they are willing to publicly admit that they want. On the other hand, what do governments do? Governments do the bad stuff that sounds good. Governments do things like, let's keep out hundreds of millions of able-bodied workers who would go and increase the production of mankind because, well, like, this is our country. This is our country. The mess of our culture, like our culture is so great as it is, right? Or things like, oh, no, you couldn't possibly knock down the wonderful historic buildings in San Francisco to build skyscrapers just because it would be worth a trillion dollars, right? You know, historic buildings, oh, we have to save every single one. Who cares about 99% of them? There's a few ones that are great and market forces will keep them around because people love them. Then we have all of the also-rans, the two and three stories buildings of San Francisco, which in any world of economic sense would have been bulldozed 50 years ago and replaced with 100-story buildings, of course. But it doesn't sound good. Government does the bad stuff that sounds good. Stopping the demolition of low-value historic buildings Government, you know, like also, you know, anytime someone says, oh, we should like price no object, we, it doesn't matter what the cost is. Yeah, it matters what the cost is. Of course it does. Doesn't sound good, but government has a strong tendency to spend enormous amounts of money for very little value because it sounds wonderful to ignore cost. But if it was your own money, you would not want to ignore cost. Yeah, good point. I, I like that dichotomy. That's, that's a, that's a yep. I like it too. That's it. why I'm doing a whole book on it. <laughs> 
It's called Unbeatable, The Brutally Honest Case for Free Markets. I dig it. So um, so part of, I think, what you're doing in The Myth of the Rational Voter, and, and this was written, is, that, is it almost 20 years now that it's been written? Gee, 15, 15. 15. So <laughs> don't take away five years from me, Cody. <laughs> I need those years. Well, so what I'm what I'm wondering is, you know, in the book, um, you know, you, you argue, um, you defend the wisdom of economists over laymen on mm-hmm. economics, which seems like a reasonable thing to do. But since you wrote the book, there's been a growing antipathy between elites or experts and regular people, mm-hmm. and and both sides have not necessarily acquitted themselves very well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and going back further in time, you know, I mean, you know, we, you, know, you could say. You know, a populist start lynch mobs, but while well, elitists also send millions to gulags and they plan economies, mm-hmm. you know, poorly, mm-hmm. leading to mass starvation. So, speaking more generally, this is a question I've been wondering: which is more dangerous to human wisdom and flourishing? Is it populism or is it elitism? I still say it's populism. Uh, look, yeah, elites do some terrible things. Here's the thing: the worst elites are worse than the worst of the populace, but the average elite is better than the average populist. So yeah, like, essentially, like the thing about elites is that they do contain a vastly more extreme range of views. So you can get Bolshevik revolutionaries, you can get you know, your Islamist fundamentalists, but they are not typical elites. They are fringes among the elites. Whereas the populace who just says, let's see, you know, kick out all the foreigners, cut out, you know, get rid of all the foreign products. I think that actually is pretty much the mainstream of populism. So it's not one where the Either you're not just picking out the worst of the populace. The, you know, the populace that you hear about are actual typical populace. But if you go and compare just like average elites to average populace, then I think the average elites are better. And in particular, here's the key thing. I think elites fail when they are still too populist. They are good when they stay in their very narrow area of expertise. You know, like, like For example, when you talk about elites and COVID fanaticism, it is not true that out of all people who are experts on COVID or even the general view among experts on COVID is that we should go and do everything possible. That's not what the view was before there was a panic. You know, before there was a panic, I'd say public health elites had more of a sense of trade-offs. There were even plans of like, how bad thing, do things have to get before we close the schools? And they're like 10 times as bad as COVID actually was, was part of the plan. But the thing is, is that when the giant moral panic takes off, then elites start saying things that sound that, that sound better to normal people, like if it saves one life, that kind of nonsense. Gotcha. Yeah, that's interesting to think. Yeah, elites elites yes. are more dangerous when they when their ideas become more popular and they become yeah. popular. You know, like, like, like during, it's during a big moral panic that elites generally start saying things that are more stupid and ridiculous. And of course, also just start going way beyond their expertise, which is yeah. also a noted problem. You know, so like, you know, like the economics profession, since I wrote The Myth of the Rational Voter, I think the economics profession has gotten a lot worse. Hmm. Uh, in particular, it's just become you know, much more standardly left-wing. But I would say it's not that they're standardly left-wing on the areas that they specialize in. It's just that they are hmm. much more of just normal left-wing people now who happen to also do some econ on the side. It's just yeah. not that important. Like The econ is just not that important for their general views. They all, like, They sort of have a bifurcation where there's these very narrow topics that I actually do research on. And for that, it's not really ideological, but it's also not very important. And then everything else, it's just like, well, what does uh, AOC say about it? So I'll go along with that. Well, in the book, you talk about how, you know, the, the, the typical economist at the time was kind of somebody who was sort of center left, somebody yes. who was, you know, 
not really libertarian exactly, but more libertarian economically than the regular person on Mm -hmm. the street would be. Um, But they were on all these, all these social issues, at the very least they were, they tended to be more left wing. Um, Yes. Social issues that I talked about, but yeah, but, but more on economics, you know, like, you know, so when I was writing me, the data was based upon 1996. But, you know, economists then had you know, much more appreciation of the social value of the market mechanism, much more appreciation of interacting with foreigners, much more reasonable views about the long run effects of allowing mechanization to displace workers. And I think that since then, it has become just more stereotypically left wing. There's hmm. been a general loss of interest in standard textbook economics in favor of doing randomized controlled trials on very picky topics. And then for your general worldview, just becoming a regular left-wing intellectual, which I think is a big mistake. I remember seeing some data, and maybe you're more familiar with it than I am, about um, the amount of academics who were in different fields and their political persuasions. Yes, yes. And ec- ec- economics was, I think, one of the most conservative, but conservatives were still rare. <laughs> yeah. So in particular, the best way to do it with academics is to do Democratic-Republican ratios because Liberal conservative are to some degree relative to your social group. Like if you are in a sociology department, you might say a moderate, even though compared to the rest of the population are actually very liberal. (laughs) So I think the Democratic Republican ratio is sort of like an SAT test where you have a common benchmark and you sort of see where the professors fit in in general society. So yeah, so 30 years ago, you would see something like 20 Democrats for a Republican in most social sciences and humanities, but economics would have more like three to one. Now economics is getting to be more like 10 to 1 and probably more like 15 to 1 among younger economists. So we're converging very rapidly to the monoculture of the rest of academia, unfortunately. Yeah. Well, it's a shame. So maybe to, to switch gears, go to our last topic here. Um, your most recent book's a collection of essays called Don't Be a Feminist. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, uh, the implied you in that sentence uh, is your daughter. That's right. Right. So maybe to start with... Um, can you define feminism for me? I often hear people say that feminism is simply the idea that men and women should be treated equally, um, yes. but that doesn't seem to cover many of the ways in which the word's used in the real world. So what, where do you land yes. on that? Good. Yeah, yes, that's a very good place to start. Let's look at how the word is actually used. It's true that many feminists try to claim this, but then there's the, the puzzle. Look, over half the population denies being a feminist. Do you think over half the population believes that men and women should not be treated equally? Do you think that over half the population believes in sexism? Where do you find people who say such things? In fact, I find survey evidence that about 95% of Americans say, you know, say that they believe that men and women should be treated equally, politically, socially, and economically. So this is a ridiculously unfair definition where feminists are basically just trying to define their view as, I just believe in being fair to people. That's what my view is. It's like calling your newspaper Pravda, meaning truth. It's like the fact that your newspaper is called truth doesn't make it so. And if you then go and say anyone who disagrees with my newspaper doesn't believe in truth, that well, that was kind of the point of labeling it that, but it's not a trick that any adult should fall for. Um, so what I do at the beginning is say, all right, well, what is feminism? And here's the thing. I think we should try to come up with a definition that actually distinguishes feminists from non-feminists in a way that both groups could accept as being a fair description of their view. All right now. It's hard to do this, but I still think that I've done a way better job than almost all feminists have, where I say, look, feminism is the view that our society generally treats men more fairly than women. The end. 
It doesn't require that you think that our society treats men much more favorably. It doesn't require that you think that all men are treated fairly and all women are treated unfairly. It just says that you believe that there is a difference in the fairness that our society accords to the genders that is worth noting and that is in men's favor. Right? And this fits not only the way the word is normally used. If you imagine someone saying, I'm a feminist and I think that our society treats women fantastically, I'm completely satisfied. Right? You're just like, really? Uh, that's odd. Or on the other hand, if you imagine someone saying, like, you know, like I'm not a feminist and I believe that, you know, what would it be? Like, you know, I'm, you know, I'm, you know, someone says, I'm, I'm not a feminist. And I think that it's just terrible the way that we're treating women and like where our society is just super unfair. It's like, hmm, that doesn't sound like someone who's not a feminist. You know, someone who's not a feminist, they might just disbelieve it. They might be agnostic. They might be someone who thinks that men are treated more unfairly. But say what all people who deny being feminists have in common, or almost all, is just saying, look, it's not really true that our society treats men more fairly than women overall. Right, so that is just the definitional point. I mean, this is one where everyone wants to argue about it, even though I'll just say, look, like the other definitions are just grossly unfair to all non-feminists, obviously. Like you mm. are ascribing a view to non-feminists that almost none of them hold. How can you keep doing this to people? It's just not right. Yeah, okay. Uh, yeah, that's interesting, yeah. So, I mean, let's say that we assume that feminists are correct in their analysis about the ways in which society is stacked against women. Yes, yes. In particular, that feminism, uh, that we take my definition and then say, yes. let's assume that it's correct. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, let's say like maybe we, we do live in a, in a rape culture to some extent mm -hmm. where, where women make less than men for the same work. And I know both of those <laughs> could be challenged. Mm -hmm. uh, but um, so if they're correct about these these kinds of problems, would you would you be so that maybe the other part of what when I think about feminism is their kinds of solutions that they tend to propose, right? Mm -hmm. So would you be a feminist in terms of sort of their solution? So in other words, mm -hmm. do you see their approach to these problems as likely to produce positive change in the world? Or is it more likely to produce like a sense of hopelessness, aggrievement, victimhood, th those sort of things? Hmm. Well, it's complicated. I mean, if you just had a system saying that women have to get half of all the good jobs, for example, on the one hand, that means that women customers are going to have to go and patronize a bunch of underqualified workers. On the other hand, it does mean that women might get those jobs. And so what the net effect for women would be for that would be unclear. Uh, so while I'm very open to the idea of feminist policies are bad for women, it's one where I'll say maybe, but what's more, what I would, like, I'd be more inclined just to argue, is it even true that the problem you're trying to correct is a genuine problem? Is it really true that women are being uh, treated very unfairly in the labor market, or are they rather being treated very fairly or maybe even more than fairly? Uh, so those are some of the questions that I think about. I mean, there is this strain of libertarian feminism, which I don't think is a contradiction in terms. You could believe that our society treats women unfairly, but then say that the free market is the best way of solving it and that government makes problems worse. That's a logically coherent view. Um, what is striking to me is that when I've actually argued with libertarian feminists, they rarely even say that. Instead, mostly they just repeat a, bu repeat a bunch of standard complaints about markets mistreating women. It's like, hmm, I mean, I'm a little puzzled by this view then. So like, if you think that markets without sexual harassment laws would have rampant sexual harassment, why exactly are you a libertarian about it? Yeah, it, it seems that a lot of these these issues, whether it's you know 
feminism or anti-racism, um, there's this um, sort of sense that, you know, like in, in the past, we, we would tend to attack um, institutionalized, you know, the, the laws separate people into these categories types mm-hmm. of things. And it becomes, I think, a lot more difficult in the current age where, it, you know, on paper, at least there, there's, there is, um, you know, de jure equality between well, sexes, between races. Well, and in fact, on paper, what we have is de jure inequality in favor of the groups that say they're being mistreated. Well, sometimes that's, yeah, that too. Yeah. Not so sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you are on any job in America these days, you are, you are aware, like, if you are a member of the allegedly oppressed group, then you can basically speak your mind and not worry about it very much. Yeah. On the other hand, if you are a member of the allegedly oppressed group, you better watch your back because you can get fired just for going and saying what you think. And again, all of this is ultimately comes down to the government has created a system where you can sue someone for saying something that, that if uh, see, you can sue someone for, 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 for you can sue your employer if a fellow employee says something that offends women, but you basically cannot sue your employer for, uh, you know, be, because a coworker said something that offended men. Yeah. So, but I think what becomes difficult then is if you can't point to a law or a regulation or something mm-hmm. that, that says, you know, we put black people here, we put women here, whatever, down below, um, how do you quantify it? And then it becomes very difficult, I think, to debate those points because you can talk about, well, women on average make less than men for doing the same jobs or whatever, but then there's all these other sort of factors, including choices that men and women make mm-hmm. that sort of end yeah. up producing this this different this, uh, um, disparity. Yeah. I mean, the only thing I disagree with there is I think that for the last 60 years, we basically had the standard of if it weren't for unfairness, there would be equal outcomes in every area. I think this has been the tacit assumption, and it's one that people are very nervous to challenge because it makes you seem like a racist or a sexist just to say, I don't know, maybe not. Maybe if everyone was treated fairly, there would be very large group disparities. Why don't we just treat people fairly and see what happens? right? Or alternately, you could say, let's go and take a look at whether in areas where no one is complaining about unfairness, whether we still have big disparities and say, oh my God, we do. Right? There are... you know. So like in the world of, I don't know, literature, you'll see there are some nationalities that are very successful in literature, others that are not. Is it because there is some kind of a conspiracy to go and uplift Japanese literature over Taiwanese literature? It's like, look, maybe the, the Japanese just excel at literature. I know they definitely excel at manga. Right? <laughs> you know, they're like other countries imitate their manga, but Japan just did it better. Right? It's not because there was someone who said, hey, let's all like Japanese manga just because it's Japanese and hate all other kinds of manga just because it's not. It's just the Japanese perform well. Right? And this is the kind of thing that happens routinely in the real world. There's just no such thing as any important measure where we have group equality. And yet, over time, it's true that as the other complaints have been solved and we don't see the group equality, then people either have to admit, oh, we were wrong all along and Fairness does not equal equality, or they have to say there must be hidden unfairness. There's unfairness everywhere, right? Which is, you know, you just say standard thing. You just keep raising the bar in order to avoid admitting that you were mistaken. Yeah. Well, one last question. So we're up against a, a deadline here. Um, why would you not want your daughter to become a feminist? Hmm. So, yes, the title essay is called Don't Be a Feminist, A Letter to My Daughter. There's a few things that I say there. First of all, there are the benefits for yourself of just not feeling like a victim, of not feeling angry at other people. 
And so I say, self-pity and antipathy, these are very destructive emotions. And despite all the claims of feminism that they are not encouraging them, I think it's very clear that they are generally encouraging them. Does not mean every single feminist encourages it, but that is by far the main trend. Uh, but secondly, I say, look, I mean, it's one thing to say the world is really unfair, but it isn't very constructive to feel oppressed. And that's true. But here's something else I say. It's not even true that you're oppressed. If we go and take a look at the actual claims about unfairness, they generally are not correct. Uh, the, the ways that society is allegedly treating women unfairly turn out when you really look at it. Usually it is not the case that women are being treated unfairly. In the other exceptions, we can also see, yes, women are treated more unfairly than men in some ways, but men are treated more unfairly than women in other ways. So basically, step one is you don't have a reason to feel to feel sorry for yourself as a woman. And, sec and then second of all, even if you did, it's still not a constructive attitude because it's going to mess up your life and it's better to go and do the best that you can with what you have. Right. So and like, like what I tell her there is, you know, you know, it's very important for you to treat other people justly and making false accusations against others is just a very bad way to be a human being. Uh, so that's, well, I think that's basically how I ended is say, look, you know, even if you could get ahead by going and, and spinning lies against other people and saying men are mistreating me when they're not, don't. And if you, if the only way to go and win is to be a jerk to other people, just lose. <laughs> Daddy, Daddy loves righteous losers more than I love <laughs> evil winners. That's great. Well, Brian Kaplan, I want to thank you again for taking an hour out of your schedule to do this. And I strongly recommend everybody check out all of these books. Yep. Yeah. And you can get them all on Amazon. They're all quite cheap at this point. So um, you know, if you feel any desire to do it, uh, just go and click. It's just a click away. Absolutely. Well, oh, yeah, I, by I, the way, so then my blog is bet on it on Substack. So uh, there's that too. And my website is bcaplan.com. So uh, great being here, Cody. Uh, where are you physically located, by the way, Cody? So I'm in uh, Southwest Ohio near Cincinnati. All right. So I've never been there, but uh, okay. it's not that far. Maybe we'll meet up one day. I um, love it. Ever in uh, Fairfax, lunch is on me. Hey, thanks, man. I really appreciate that. Right. Wonderful talk. All right. Great talking. I'll talk to you later. Decrease that sweet, that's cool for me. Letting him lead that super breeze. Riding his coattail, Uber G.